Hey guys, it's Will Gadara. Welcome back. Appreciate you listening. We're talking about vulnerability this month. And it's such a funny thing because as I've had conversations with different people, either on this podcast or just in life, it's become clear to me how many different areas in life where vulnerability comes in play is an extraordinary strength. And how sometimes being vulnerable doesn't actually feel like you're being vulnerable at all. Back in the day at Love Madison Park, I went to a restaurant downtown and sat down to eat. And on the bottom right-hand corner of the menu was a little line that said, and I'm not remembering this perfectly, but something to the effect of, don't tell us if you're allergic to anything. Don't tell us if you don't like anything. We're not going to change the dishes. Just eat them the way they are. And I remember looking at it and, Listen, the food was incredible. I had a great time. But thinking, what the f***? Like, this is a restaurant? And sorry to curse. I was just so astonished by it that I can't actually react to that without cursing. This is like goes against the very reason that I decided to do this for a living in the first place. And so I went back to the restaurant and we all sat down and we decided to not only go in the other direction, but run in the opposite direction. And what I mean by that was we started off every meal, the captains would go to the table and they'd say, hey, let us know if you're allergic to anything. We already did that. Most great restaurants did. Also, let us know if there are any ingredients you don't like, or even if there's just something you're not in the mood to eat tonight. It just felt like service and hospitality were going in the wrong direction. And if we are there for people to feel seen and loved and served and heard, that leaning all the way in was the right way to get there. And so I was super proud and we were all fired up and the kitchen spent so much time making sure that we had riffs on every single dish so that no matter what we heard back, we were ready to deliver people the experience of a lifetime. And we started night one, all the captains went out, they'd practiced their spiels, they'd figured out how to say it in their own words. And one after another, no table was sharing anything. It almost felt like there were less allergies than there were the week before. But certainly no one was telling us that they didn't like anything or that they just weren't in the mood to eat something that night. And it became pretty clear why. Listen, in this day of whether it's shows like Anthony Bourdain's shows or Andrew Zimmern's shows where people eat all sorts of weird things. Listen, it's cool to like weird stuff. It's cool to like everything. And we found that people weren't willing to say they didn't like oysters because they were concerned that it wasn't cool to not like oysters. And so one day I said, this stinks. I was so excited about this. No one's giving us anything. Maybe the thesis was wrong, but I ended up taking a station. Went up to the first table, did my spiel and nothing. Second table, did my spiel and nothing. Third table I went up to, I said, hey, the whole thing. And I said, and I'll tell you a little secret. I hate sea urchin. Now, I would imagine most people listening to this are in the restaurant business. Those of you who aren't, if you do what I do, you're supposed to like sea urchin. <laughs> I've always hated it. Grant Ackett also hates sea urchin, and he'll admit that. And that, when I heard it, like made me feel confident that it was okay to not like sea urchin. But I said that to the table, and one woman looks up at me, and her eyes light up. And it was almost as if if I was willing to say that I didn't like something, she now felt safe to turn around and tell me that she didn't like something as well. I forget what they said. One of the guests said, I don't like oysters. The next one said, I don't like foie gras. And it went on. Okay, is telling a group of strangers that you don't like sea urchin the perfect embodiment of being vulnerable? No. But what the experience showed me is that if you're willing to open up about something personal to you, it's unbelievable how quickly others will do the same in return. Whether we're leading people, whether we're serving people, the only way to do that effectively is if people let their guards down. And the only way people will ever let their guards down is if they trust you. And one of the ways to engage trust more quickly than any other way is to express vulnerability. I was reminded of that in the conversation that you're about to hear. This is one of my favorite conversations I've had on this podcast to date. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I know I did. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. You do. Weekly special. Weekly special. 
My next guest is one of my favorite people in the world and probably one of the smartest people I know. He's brilliant, he's kind, he's funny, and he's a world-class marketer and mentor. Seth Godin has been an inspiration and teacher for thousands and thousands of people around the globe. We're also fortunate enough to have him on the stage at the 2019 Welcome Conference in conversation with my other good friend, Brian Koppelman. I've gotten to know Seth so much more since then, and he never ceases to amaze me. Seth, I'm just so excited that you're here. Welcome to the show. Oh, you're the best. So good to talk to you. So let's just start. I'd love to just hear about how you've been approaching these nine months since our world got flipped upside down. I feel that so many people in my world it's impacted the way they look at the world or they've been finding silver linings or, and I'd just love to hear your thoughts on all of that. What's been your experience? Well, I'm so lucky. I won the birthday lottery. I've been able to support myself and my family and stay off airplanes and away from things. And I am filled with tenderness and pathos and empathy for all the people who have been dealing with so much, whether it's health issues or our overdue focus on racial injustice and economic things, it's real. At the same time, there's always been tragedy and dislocation. The difference this time is it's happening to everyone at the same time. Hmm. And that changes things because it means there's no time off. It means every time you turn around, everyone around you is also engaging with whatever it is. If you lost your job five years ago, you could be surrounded by people who were financially secure. But now, particularly in an industry like hospitality, everyone is feeling the same thing. And that can be an amplifier if we're not careful. It can get us into an echo chamber. And so what I'm seeing is a lot of people are getting back to first principles. Who do they care about? Who do they want to spend time with? Who do they seek when they look for solace. And you know, a lot of people like to complain about the miracle that is Zoom, but it also means that we don't have to worry about geography the way that we used to. And if someone is worth talking to, we can talk to them. And I think that as the vaccine arrives and the world shakes off 2020, which we'll all be glad to see good, say goodbye, I'm hopeful that people will bring some of that empathy and connection with them into our future and not just the hustle and the hype and the zeros. How many more zeros can I get? I don't really think we need more zeros. I think we need more humanity and meaning in what we do. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting. So many people have said, you know, on the other side of this, I'm not going to go back to the life I had before. I don't want that life anymore. And I'm just similarly so curious about how long that will actually stick yeah. for. Yeah, capitalism is quite a ratchet. And if you had jumped ahead, if you took someone from 1930 and put them into 1960, they would have instantly dropped dead from a heart attack. And the same thing from 1960 to 2000, mm -hmm. because it establishes a normal that is about competition, about the fact that there's scarcity at every corner. And you know, the pizza in New York City sucks compared to what it did 20 years ago, because it was a race to the bottom. And the level of service and hospitality in New York City went through the roof because it was a race to the top. Mm. And you got to pick which race you want. And we pick that by deciding who our heroes are, who we're hanging out with, and what we're keeping track of. It's funny. Like, I have chronic back issues. My back, like, once a year goes out on me. And I go to physical therapy, I re-strengthen my core. And when my back is out and I'm in a lot of pain, I always say to myself, okay, going forward, every day I'm going to do my exercises, every day I'm going to do my stretches. And then it's almost like a week after my back doesn't hurt anymore, I immediately forget about the pain I was experiencing. And Well, that's because you're not associating your stretching with anything other than your back pain. And so when your back pain is gone, there's no reason to stretch. If you started associating your stretching with something else that was present every day, then that's what you would do. Yeah. 
That's why morning pages are so cool for creative people. You know, Julia's idea of writing three pages is not that you will ever show them. You should destroy them every day. It doesn't matter. It's simply that just like a cup of coffee is associated with the morning, getting rid of three pages of cruft from your head is associated with the morning. And the same thing is true with stretching. If you pair it with something else that you're also going to do, then it will get done. And one of the things that has been so impressive about your work is watching how you have brought things that didn't used to be associated with consuming food into pairings with that so that they are associated. And it's always that way. And that's how we build a habit. I appreciate that. All right. Today we're talking about vulnerability and we're going to like dig in and we're talking about it because listen, and I I think in many industries in our industry specifically, and I, I talked about this when we kicked off this month, but we're all used to no matter how the restaurant is doing, screaming to the world, we're crushing it. Mm-hmm. Right. And no one can pretend to be crushing it right now. And I think to your point, that's what is making this season of suffering so different that we're all suffering together. The beautiful part of that is in that we've been connecting and forming community in our industry like we never have before. And and also in leadership, just not pretending to have all the answers. But So before we get into the nitty gritty, just what are your thoughts generally from 30,000 feet? What does vulnerability mean to you? So why shake hands? I mean, in this age of viruses, why shake hands? And we know why, because we use our right hand because most people are right hand dominant. And if you're shaking hands, you're not also carrying a sword. Hmm. And to show up with an open, empty hand says to the other person, you could kill me right now if you want to. I am vulnerable to your attack. And that makes you more trustworthy. And trust does things to our brain. And it enables us to have interactions with people that we wouldn't be able to have if we didn't trust. And when we think about civilization, all civilization is, is a series of trustworthy transactions. And this is the thing that libertarians get wrong over and over again, that you cannot build a civilized society that doesn't have trust at its core. And trust comes because human beings see one another as fellow citizens, not as people to be taken advantage of. Hmm. And there are lots of ways to earn trust. And it's really interesting in your industry because particularly in the last 10 years, the very scarce breed of macho French chef arrogance has been magnified. And to be in a kitchen with somebody like that is something that a lot of people looked up to. And we associated that arrogance with somebody that we could trust who would take us into battle, a general who was sure of himself. And, you know, Gabrielle, female, a a woman too, sure of themselves. And the whole idea that the restaurant is a version of going to battle with a trusted core of people is appealing to a lot of people, depending on how you're raised, but not a lot of room for vulnerability in that setting. You don't get to say, I'm not really sure that our platform is going to be what we need it to be, or that this dish is going to work. You're not allowed to say that. And I think that there's room for an alternative. And that alternative says human beings serving other human beings goes way back to who we want to be and where we want to be seen and heard and connected. And to get there, sometimes we need to signal to other people how we're feeling. And that can't always be, I'm crushing it. It might simply be the truth of how we're feeling. Yeah. But just as the French chef thing got out of hand, the vulnerability thing can get out of hand if you go too far in the other direction. Because people don't feel comfortable doing ongoing emotional therapy at work all day, every day, because (laughs) they need also to feel safe. Yeah. Well, I mean, we always, in our restaurants, we talk about vulnerability and it's two forms because there's two types of relationships that we focus on that between us and the people we're serving and between us and the people we lead. And there's overlap there because the people we lead, we're also serving, but for sure, with the people that we're serving, 
our goal is to get them to let their guard down. Because if at a world-class restaurant, our goal is to create a genuine human connection with the people that are at the table, yep. that connection doesn't happen until the guard is down. And the best way to encourage someone to put their guard down is to let your guard down. But you're right. I think it's always been tricky in the restaurant business on the leadership side for leaders to recognize that vulnerability is actually a better way to engage the trust of your team because so many people came up during a season in our industry's evolution where, to your point, the leader was meant to be stoic and all-knowing and unwilling to be challenged or criticized. And, and so when someone comes up having, I guess, learned what wrong looks like, how do they break free of that such that they can see more clearly what right looks like? Okay, so I'm controversial on this respect. What a surprise. But um, <laughs> it's all a performance. Everything we're doing with everyone in our lives is a performance. There, no one ever knows the truth of anybody. We make choices based on what gets us where we want. There's an intentional act. We may not have a narrative for it, but it's an intentional act. So back when I was building one of the first internet companies, you didn't say internet company and get funding. You said internet company and people laughed at you. Hmm. And in one day I was in three states trying to raise money for this company. We had 40 people all in one big office and we were about to miss payroll. We were just three weeks away from having to either shut down or get rid of a lot of people. And at the end of those three pitches that hadn't gone very well, to come back to these people that just like a intense restaurant kitchen, I was, you know, sitting next to every single day in this intense quest. I wanted and needed their compassion and connection. I needed to be able to talk about what I was dealing with. And as I started to talk to some of them about it, I realized it wasn't going to be allowed. That existential threats do not make people feel safe existential threats would not have brought us together because no one in that room but me could solve this problem. Mm. And their sympathy wasn't going to make life better. I needed them to feel confident in the work they were doing to get us over the hump. That's one reason it's so lonely to be in those shoes. On the other hand, if you show up at a table at a fine dining establishment and say, the chef worked this out over lunch today and we're not sure if we're going to add it to the menu. What do you think? Yeah. That is a vulnerable expression of connection because what it does is it puts the diner who might want to be in the driver's seat in the driver's seat, even more than posting a Yelp review because the chef just sent something out for them to taste and say, nah, or yeah, right? And now there are, everyone's on the same team. That's different than the chef sending out a note saying, we lost our funding and we think we're going to go out of business next week. Enjoy <laughs> your dinner. Well, in the, in the example of the guests, you're also welcoming them to feel a sense of ownership and the yep. collective experience. Exactly. I think, and I think you're right. But I think what you're saying is, hey, as a leader, expressing vulnerability when the people that work with or for you actually have the ability to, to help you solve the problem, right. that's when it's appropriate. Correct. And I think right now, I mean, listen, any server, busboy, cook, dishwasher, as we're trying to navigate how to reopen restaurants in the time of COVID, everyone has a valid point of view and can be a part of that. Right. But at the same time, if they wanted to go get funding for a restaurant, they would. They don't. They want you to go do that. Yeah. And that's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I love that. All right. So I never liked homework, but I've actually gotten into homework in this podcast, I've liked like preparing for these conversations, especially with people that I've known for a really long time. And so I spent more time on your blog over the past couple of days thinking about the conversations I wanted to have. And there was one post that I just loved, and I'm, I'm going to read it in a second. And I loved it because it touched on two words that seem obvious as words that should be said in restaurants all the time, but I've always found in training that I need to make sure the team remembers to say them. And so this is, this is your blog, the vulnerability of thank you. Thank you, as in, I couldn't do it without you. As in, I don't want to do this alone. As in, I was afraid, 
And mostly, I would miss you if you were gone. Thank you brings us closer together. Thank you is a limb worth going out on. And so I loved that because, I mean, I've talked so many times about the power of the words thank you in a very different way. I've always talked about how if restaurants aren't gratitude-based organizations, then we're missing the entire point of why we chose to do this for a living. And I've also spent years talking about the power of vulnerability and serving other people, and I've never once made that connection. And hearing the way you describe it was a light bulb moment for me. And knowing that I read you your words just now, how did you get there? And what are, can you talk about it a little bit? Yeah, I'll put one next to it, which is one I've been hearing a riff recently, which is the difference between no problem and it's my pleasure. Hmm. They are both empty sentences that fill a gap, but one of them says, you owe me something. And the other one says, it was my delight to engage with you. Right. And I have a method for writing my blog. And what I, you know, what I talk about in my new book, the practice is my streak of 7,000 blog posts is a gift to me more than it is to my readers because there'll be a blog post tomorrow, not because it's perfect or the best one I ever wrote, but because it's tomorrow. And streaks really matter. Mm. So with that said, the way I write my blog is I try to explain to myself something I didn't used to understand. And now maybe I do. I'm making an assertion about something in the world that works, but why, right? And too often we were brainwashed as kids to just accept that refrigerators are cold and electricity makes lights go on. But why? How does it work? So what is the, when thank you works, and it's not just an empty phrase like no problem, but when it actually works, why does it work? And it works because it's the open hand of a handshake. It shows you have no weapon. It shows that you are saying to the other person, this would be harder without you. Thank you. Thank you for seeing me or supporting me or being here. And it's interesting when we try to dissect the no tipping movement in the US about where it stumbled and where it may come back to. In a hyper-capitalist society like ours, people wanted to discharge their relationship with the server by leaving this anonymous, semi-anonymous piece of money on the table. And unfortunately, it boiled things down to a hack because a good server with a good shift can make a lot more money than someone who doesn't know the tricks or doesn't have the right shift. And we don't have to turn everything into money. We really don't. We could just simply turn it into human beings inhabiting the same space. And so I don't think you should say thank you because you'll get a better tip. I think you say thank you because it helps the other person truly be seen. Oh my God. Okay, I love that, A. And B, you said something which also touched on, okay, early in my career, I was super maniacal about what words we were allowed to say in the restaurant and what words we weren't allowed to say in the restaurant. And I lost my way for a certain measure of time when I got to the point of giving the team a script of exactly how to spiel a dish. And it was kind of a low point where I was so focused on perfection that I stopped letting people be their most fully realized selves. But there are a few things that I did hold on to. And I just talked about one of them, like, guys, like the power of the words, thank you. And then the other thing I said is, I would always say when someone says thank you to you, please don't say you're welcome. Please say it's my pleasure. And I would, you said no problem and it's my pleasure. And now I'm thinking that and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And I'm also on a Zoom window with you and I'm looking at the logo that says welcome in front of me. And so, so we've already said in the hierarchy of responses, it's my pleasure is up here and no problem is down here. What are your thoughts on the response? You're welcome. Well, the response works if you don't get hung up on the conjugation of the first two words, right? If you say you are welcome, and you don't have to say it like that, but if that's what comes across, that's the beauty of the word welcome in your logo. What does it mean to be welcome? That pineapple on the side of a New England house, the mat in front of the door that doesn't say go away. You know, in New Hampshire, years ago when I was canvassing for politics with my son, 
what I noticed is that the houses didn't have doorbells. And the reason is, if you're a friend, come on in. And if you're not, go away. <laughs> we're not, we don't want any spammers here, right? And so what it means to say to someone, you are welcome, could easily be pronounced and communicated in a way that says what you mean it to say. Yeah. But we're in such a hurry, we can't let a thank you just hang in the air. So we got to say, Roger, over, back to you. And we say that by saying, you're welcome, all is one word. It's funny, like as you said it, when you were talking about that before and I'm looking at the welcome logo, I realized that I think I was totally wrong all that time. And I was saying it for the same reason you articulated the difference between no problem and it's my pleasure. No problem illustrates like you should be thanking me almost. All right, so I'm glad. Sorry to anyone who ever worked with me that I told you weren't allowed to say you're welcome. (laughs) There was a restaurant that we used to go to that was super fancy. And the chef there dictated what the servers had to say. And all they were allowed to say were nouns. So they, there was like, it was like an 18 course thing and they would come to the table and they would say, lettuce. Or they would come to the table and say, fish. <laughs> and it was like eating in Stalinist Soviet Union, but with better supplies. Well, when I really kind of lost myself in that, Pete Wells came in like four days into a new menu and wrote a piece that was not a review. He actually fired a warning shot and said, it was like he was writing specifically to me and saying, you're messing this up, fix it. And he was right. And thankfully, I was in a place in my life where I was able to hear that and not get too defensive and and lean further into what was not the right approach to be taking. Okay, vulnerability and this comes out of your world a little bit, it's often put in the same category as anxiety. Interesting. I've seen people feel anxious. I mean, you even talk about it, and we're going to get to this, about like, is anxiety in facing your fears? Mm -hmm. And there's like, I definitely put that together a little bit. Like facing your fears requires a certain amount of vulnerability and articulating it and saying it out loud. But, and let's unpack that in a second. But You've written a lot about our anxieties when it comes to setting goals and taking chances. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people in the world generally, especially in our world, in the restaurant world right now, are like almost paralyzed by anxiety, unsure of what tomorrow might hold. What would you say to those people? Well, the words matter a lot. So let me just tell you how I interpret these words. Okay. The word anxious can mean two things. It doesn't mean looking forward to something like I'm anxious to see you, but we misuse it that way. It also means I'm anticipating bad outcomes and I'm feeling stress about that. So anxiety is the feeling of failure in advance. That you don't have anxiety when you're outside in a cold rain because it's already cold rain. You have anxiety a week before your wedding because you looked at the weather forecast and you're worried about what it's going to be like on your wedding day. Those are different things. So if we are experiencing failure in advance, that is a choice. And it's not a happy choice, but we made it somewhere deep down. Now, you said earlier that confronting our fears requires vulnerability. I don't think it does. I think that um, if you want to succeed at something, being clear about the potential pitfalls, the things that you are worried might happen, is a really good way to succeed at it. But you don't have to experiencing, you don't have to experience the failures in advance, but you have to know that the failures are possible. And this is where the punchline comes in, which is many of the people, and we're not, I'm not talking to anybody who has a significant mental health issue, that mental health anxiety is a totally different thing. Not talking about that. Yes. But somebody who's feeling traditional garden variety anxiety, that person might be looking for reassurance. And reassurance is futile. There is never enough reassurance. Someone telling you that everything is going to be okay, you know they are lying because they don't know. Because it's the future. So what we need, if we are going to be spiritual warriors on our way to making things better, is we need to not need reassurance, to refuse reassurance, and to say, I see the pitfalls that lie ahead. I am aware of my fears. I'm going to do this anyway. 
you don't need to tell me everything's going to be okay because it might not be okay. <laughs> and so my slogan, every time I do something that is important, is three words, four words. This might not work. If you can say to yourself, this might not work, with a smile on your face, it is way easier to do important work. Huh. Yeah. And in our world, that's a hard thing to say. Yep. When a reviewer is in the restaurant, I might get a bad review. All right. Right. But let's be us. If we're going to get a bad review, at least let's get a bad review being us. Yes. Let's be yeah. fully authentic. Let's get a re bad review that actually reflects who we are as opposed right. to a bad review being who we were trying to be. You can't control what kind of day Pete had. You can't control what Pete's agenda is. You can't control what Pete's editor has in mind. You can't control the fact that they know clickbait rewards one star. You can't control any of those things. The only thing you can control is who you are, what you say, what you cook, how you put it out there. So instead of trying to reverse engineer for this unknown out of control thing, engineer what you can control. and do that without regard for reassurance. So, well, let me, and I want to dig into this a little bit deeper because, and I just brought up the review, which is honestly compared to what we're going through right now, actually not even that. This is a season where you're like, who fucking cares about right. like, reviews anymore? And there's a chef named Ed Lee who just wrote an article in Bon Appetit saying, I forget the name of the subject of the article, but it was something it might be too late to save independent restaurants. And in it, he talks about like, hey, if our industry dies, we don't know how to do anything else. And so when you say this might not work, if that's about someone's entire livelihood, it's almost one of those things that's easier said than done, right? Because it's hard to not then feel overwhelming anxiety about how am I going to pay my mortgage? How am I going to take care of my kids? And Well, it depends on what we're in service of. If you need a job, go get a job. If this frontier, the craft of making something worth reviewing is what you need to do, hmm. that's different than saying, I'm going to open a Long John Silver's, right? The only thing Long John Silver's and your restaurants have in common is that you won't starve to death if you have access to either place. That's all they have in common. So they don't belong in the same category. The reason we don't just keep listening to the same songs from 1969 over and over and over again, is we have a need for novelty. Well, if you decide to make a record that sounds like all the records that came before, I guarantee it will fail. And if you decide to open an independent restaurant that is just like Long John Silver's, it will fail. Because you're competing against somebody who's better at being Long John Silver's than you. If you want to succeed, at music, at building a consulting firm, at opening a restaurant, the only way to do it is to do something that might not work. Because if you try to do something that's sure to work, it will fail. And so I am not arguing for foolish risk-taking. I'm saying the safest thing you can do is have as your narration, I'm going to live on the frontier and do something that might not work. That is the safest way to build a thriving independent restaurant. Or the safest way to pivot your restaurant in this exact moment in time. Yeah. When, if we're so attached to the way that we used to do things that we're unwilling to try new things, we're going to fail. And this is the time to try things that might be a little bit ridiculous and have no chance of succeeding, but trying something is better than continuing to go to the old playbook, which is clearly no longer relevant. Yeah. And I think that, you know, different industries evolve at different paces. So let's think about classical music. There was a peak of Tchaikovsky kind of classical music in which there were a hundred people in the orchestra and everyone was wearing a tuxedo and everyone in the audience was wearing formal wear and it was all oversubscribed and it cost a fortune, right? And so for generations, people went to Juilliard to be part of the orchestra industrial complex. And then all of a sudden, all these cities don't need an oboe player anymore because they don't have an orchestra anymore. Does that mean we're not listening to music? Of course we are. We're listening to more music than ever before. More people heard Beethoven's Fifth yesterday than heard it 100 years ago, for sure. So it's not that there's a music shortage. It's that the industry hits a speed bump. But if you're a talented musician and you understand that playing the music as written isn't really your job because the CD player can do that better than you, 
you can realize you're an impresario, you're a creator of joy, that there's something in a live event that can change people. But it's not going to be Carnegie Hall with 100 people on stage. The industry doesn't support that the way it used to. And I think what we did over the 35 years I've been going to fine restaurants is the price has gone up by a factor of five. The overhead has gone up by a factor of 10. And Mm -hmm. there's this arms race that went on Whereas the same number of hours are spent in service and things like that. So deconstruct the whole thing and get to the heart of why are you doing this to begin with? And why does it need to be on that block and not this block? And do you really need to call David Rockwell? And how many people need to be on each table? And do I really need to serve bluefin tuna? If we go through all of the choices that became just matters of course and rip them out, right? that I don't think anyone went to your restaurant because your caviar was $300 an ounce that you bought. They would have had just as good a time if there had been no caviar at all. It's just you got caught on that hedonic treadmill. And I don't think that's necessary to get to the heart of why you set out to do this job. Hmm. You told me once, and I forget exactly in what transition it happened, but I think you just sold your internet company and you were trying to figure out what was next for you. And you literally sat in the dark for a year and I might be generalizing it, but that's true. I think in order to go through the exercise that you just articulated, people need space and time. So can you just tell that story and then talk about how it applies to people in our world? Well, I'm not recommending this. First of all, (laughs) Um, selling my company was the hardest thing I'd done. It did not give me any joy. And my mom got very ill and passed away in the middle of it. Mm. And my team was dispersed to the winds because that's what happens when you sell a company. So all of these things went on at the same time. And the whole outside world wanted to high five me because that's what you're supposed to do. And I felt like that wasn't what I had signed up for, nor was it like after that, what's the encore, right? Because I built a company, I'd written a New York Times bestseller. What if you're judging yourself on performance and what the outside world says, sort of hard to top that. And we know from watching what happens to people who win gold medals in the Olympics, same thing. It's just like, you can't go back and do it again. And even if you could, what are you going to get? A better goal, a platinum medal? They don't have platinum medals. Yeah. And so a lot of people who I worked with at Yahoo were stuck on that treadmill and they started another company, another company, another company doesn't get you any of the things that you were looking for. It's like being married seven times. So it's not the point. And I knew myself well enough to understand that the thing I most wanted to do, which was dive into something that all-encompassing to make the noise go away, was not going to get me to where I needed to go. The way to make the noise go away was to hear the noise, was to sit with the noise. And what happened was, I gave a few seminars during that period of time, but not very much. Guy that few people had heard of named Malcolm Gladwell sent me the galley for a book called The Tipping Point. Mm -hmm. And he asked if I would write a blurb for it. And I didn't realize that I had spent 11 months in the back of my head thinking about a book because I told myself I was not going to, I'd done one and done. And In the two weeks after I read The Tipping Point, I wrote a book called Unleashing the Idea Virus. It took me two weeks. I just sat and I typed it. So clearly I'd been thinking about this for a long time. And I sent it to Malcolm and I said, look, my book's going to come out before yours because I'm going to self-publish it. I won't do that if you think I'm ripping you off. And he was nice enough to write the foreword for that book. And I just posted it on the web for free because I needed to strip away the trappings of publishing and getting picked. And I did not care about what the world said a successful book was. I just said, I have something to share here. And, you know, the irony is it was my most popular book still to this day, millions and millions and millions of copies downloaded because it was the right time, the right place. and was free. Right. But that's not why I did it. I did it because I was finally able to say, the thing that goes with this might not work is I will do my best work, but I do not need the reassurance of knowing you liked it. I just need to know this is my best work right now. 
And I love that. But hold on. The thing that you're not recommending seems to me that allowing yourself to hear the noise. Oh, that part is the part I'm recommending. Okay. <laughs> the part about losing a parent and having yes, your team go away, all that stuff was trauma. Uh, not trauma like so many people have to deal with that's not their choice, but it was hard. And that's the part I'm not recommending. I mean, listen, coronavirus, for me, the silver lining has been that, I mean, I went through very similar situation to what you just talked about. I sold my company and lost my team. A lot of people congratulated me. It was not, I was not in a place where I was excited to receive congratulations. And I almost did exactly what those other people did, where I was a week away from signing more restaurant leases and jumping right back into it. And I think all in an effort to make sure that I didn't have to hear that noise and the punishing. I remember the two of us talking about it right in that moment. And so the punishing part and the liberating part of this season has been, I did not have the wherewithal to do what you did. I was forced into it and I feel blessed that I was. Okay. Your book V is for vulnerable. That's not why I thought of you to be a part of our vulnerability month. Uh, but I have written one of the only books with V in the title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, it's written like a kid's book. If anyone hasn't seen it, it goes through the alphabet. And why did you write it as a kid's book? Okay, so... Um, the style I want, ones, yeah, I have a good answer for that. I want to insert an aside before I forget. If you're a restaurant impresario or a maitre d' or someone who runs the front or the back of the house, I hope that you can set aside Food Network TV shows and the occasional public equity home run when you talk to people or yourself about what you do, because it's not a good business. Do the math. And it is not something you're doing to make a lot of money. What you are doing is organized group therapy and art. It's art in that you are putting something out that involves other human beings that's different than last night. It's not a factory system. It's not McDonald's. And It's group therapy in that what's happening at table seven might be remembered by the people at table seven for a long time. And that the interactions between your staff and each other and your staff and table seven have never happened before and will never happen again. And if you can orchestrate all of that for 100 or 500 people in one night, that's a calling. And the craft of performing that calling is what your industry does at its best. And acknowledging that that's what you do, I think is really helpful in helping you make decisions. Because someone says, well, now I need to open my second restaurant. We say, well, that means you're not going to be at one of them at all times. Is that going to make this work better? Right? Et cetera. So we can go into that. All right. V is for vulnerable. I wrote a book called The Icarus Deception. And when I am in flow, well, in the practice, I talk about how you get in flow. You don't wait for flow and then start writing. You write and then you get into flow. And the same thing is true on the pass at a a good night in the kitchen. You don't wait until you're in the moment, you do the work. And the last section of that book is a one page abacadary, which is A through Z of that. And I looked at it and I said, wow, why don't I make that into a book all by itself? And I play with the medium. I play with the internet. I play with books. I play with audio. That's what I do. And I was like, I don't think anyone's made a kid's book based on a business book. And my friend Hugh is a brilliant illustrator. Why don't I ask him? And so I had the tools in place to confront expectations. And it wasn't about my ego. It was about Dr. Seuss. Because if you grew up in a magical household, Dr. Seuss may have a Proustian connection for you. That an adult reading you a Dr. Seuss book puts you into a different state of mind. And I thought, what would happen if I could help people recapture that feeling? Because like the restaurant owner who's doing group therapy, I think that's sort of what I'm trying to do, Mm -hmm. is create environments where people who trust each other can talk about an idea and maybe be glad they did. And so V is for Vulnerable, which was not a commercial success, 
was my attempt to steal the penumbra of Dr. Seuss, but put into it the words of my book. You know, it's funny because anytime I ask a question, I've always spent time thinking about what the answer will be. (laughs) How many points did I get? (laughs) Well, because before I said vulnerability is in the same category as anxiety. And I saw a look on your face that was processing through whether or not you agreed with that. And the reason I say that, there were times when someone on the team did something that was self-absorbed and damaging to the entire team. Something that in normal restaurant cultures would have resulted in them being fired. I've always tried to err on the side of people say like hire slowly, fire quickly. And my whole thing is, well, not too quickly. We throw around this like whole, we're a family thing. You don't just fire your family the first time they do something really wrong. Plus they learned something really expensive and now you're going to let them take that learning somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so there were times where I said, Hey, like, this is what you did. I'm willing to give you another chance, but you didn't just disrespect me by doing it. You disrespected the team. And so if you're willing to step up in front of the entire team and say, Hey, I did this, I recognize where I went wrong and I'm sorry, then let's give it another shot because we're a team. We're working together. And I put anxiety and vulnerability sometimes in the same category because When that's happened, there is so much anxiety around how people will respond when someone stands in front of a group and expresses vulnerability, especially when that person's not accustomed to doing it on an ordinary basis. So first, I just needed to explain why I think about the two in concert. (laughs) I adhere to the way you think about this, but I want to add one thing from evolutionary biology that I think is a little different. Group dynamics exist because if there's a, a tribe of 50 people in the savannah, and you offend the chief and three other powerful people, they kick you out and you die. Mm. And talking to the whole team at once is different than saying, you need to meet with five people on this team one at a time. And if they all think you should stay, then you can stay. Because those interactions have a different flavor of anxiety than the public speaking element, which Because it has to happen in real time. If the first two or three people who speak up say one thing, the whole crowd is going to go in one direction. So back to the intimacy, which is that other word that ends in why here. Because the biggest difference between one of your restaurants and Five Brothers or whatever that place is called is there's no intimacy at a fast food restaurant. And intimacy is really what you're selling. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess there's also just generally, for some people, anxiety around public speaking. And so you're almost right. <laughs> right, because for good reason, because yeah. public speaking can ruin your life. Can ruin your life. Yeah. If you do a bad job of public speaking a thousand years ago, you're going to die. If you do a bad job of public speaking in ninth grade, you don't get elected to student council. And for the rest of the year, people mm-hmm. are going to look at you funny. It has this multiplier effect that is really different than individual speaking, which is the speaking we all do. Yes. Wow. Well, all of that to say, the thing I thought you were going to say when I said, why did you do Via vulnerable as a kid's book, was speaking to the whole Dr. Seuss thing is for a lot of people who are scared of being vulnerable, putting it in a comforting format might bring them back to that comfort blanketed in your parents. Get under their skin. My best books get under somebody's skin. It's true. Okay. Last question, and this is how we end each one of these conversations. But before we pressed record, I was just remarking how this is a weird time. What is it? It's December 8th right now. And we're hearing all these optimistic things with vaccines and political shifts and all of this. But at the same time, we're reading that the world is like COVID is getting stronger and worse. And Fauci is saying that after the holidays, it's going to be one of the most devastating times. And so I was talking about how like there's tension between feeling optimistic, and then the opposite of that. And so on December 8th, to the people tuning into this, what is giving you hope right now? I think the thing that's been giving me hope for a really long time is we are not a megatrend, and we are not what the media portrays. It, like organized professional sports, profits from pitting people against each other and creating moments of drama. What we are is 
our circle of five or 30 or 150, that Dunbar number, the 150 people who might come to your funeral, the 150 people who will take your call. And we have a lot in common with everyone around the world, way more than we would, the media would give us credit for. But those 150 people, if you can make their lives better, they can make 150 other people's lives better. And that is what has always changed our culture. Our culture doesn't come from the top down and it doesn't come from the Washington Post. Our culture comes from people like us doing things like this. And we get to decide who the people like us are and we get to decide what the things like this are. Mm. Seth, thank you so much for giving me your time. What a treat. What a treat. Can we do this very soon, please? I would love that. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thanks to the incredibly generous sponsors who give us the resources to not only create this content, but to deliver it to you. Perhaps the greatest gift is that they've given us the opportunity to connect with you here, even during a season when we're unable to connect with you in person. Those are our friends and partners at American Express, at Resi, and at Sam Pellegrino. We appreciate you all so much. That catchy music you hear, that's by our friend Aaron Raytier. He's amazing. Check him out. And to the team at the Welcome Conference, who's been working so hard this year. Obviously, Anthony Rudolph and Brian Canlis, who you see alongside me on stage. But then Aaron Ginsberg, who's been running the show with a ton of support by Sandra DeCapua. There's a lot to be thankful for, even during a time that feels so challenging. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And if you want to check up on us and see what we're up to, go to welcomeconference.org. It's the weekly special. You do, 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 do. Weekly special. Weekly special. Do, 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 do. The weekly special.